The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. The House will return Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. Last week in the House, the House returned on Monday and took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed a rule, then took up H.J. Res. 30, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rule submitted by the Department of Labor relating to prudence and loyalty in selecting plan investments and exercising shareholder rights. We talked about this CRA resolution at some length last week. The CRA resolution of disapproval would overturn a Biden Labor Department rule that itself overturned a Trump Labor Department rule governing how investment managers can make decisions on how to direct the funds of the roughly 150 million pensioners whose pensions are regulated by the federal government. The Trump DOL rule said investment managers cannot take into account ESG principles when making investment decisions for the funds under their control, because that necessarily adds a political aspect to the decision-making process. And that means, by definition, that you're not using the proper fiduciary principles. The Biden Department of Labor rule overturned that and says, nah, that's not important. What's important is directing trillions of dollars of equity investment into ESG funds, regardless of whether or not that's the wisest move financially. By a vote of 216 to 204, the House approved the resolution and overturned the Biden rule. On Wednesday, the House took up H.R. 347, the Rain in Act. That acronym stands for Reduce Exacerbated Inflation Negatively Impacting the Nation. After considering six amendments and adopting three of them, the House voted to pass the amended measure by a vote of 272 to 148, with four Republicans voting against and a whopping 59 Democrats crossing party lines to vote for it. And then they were done. This week in the House, the House will return on Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider five bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House will begin consideration of H.R. 140, the Protecting Speech from Government Interference Act. That's a bill that prohibits employees of the federal government from taking, quote, action within their authority or influence to promote the censorship of any lawful speech, nor advocating that a third party, including a private entity, censor such speech, end quote. In addition, the House may consider H. Conres 21, directing the President, pursuant to Section 5C of the War Powers Resolution, to remove the United States Armed Forces from Syria. On Thursday, the House will complete its consideration of H.R. 140, the Protecting Speech from Government Interference Act. On Friday, the House will consider H.J. Res. 27. That's a CRA resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Department of the Army, Corps of Engineers, Department of Defense, and the Environmental Protection Agency relating to revised definition of waters of the United States. The House will also consider S-619, a bill to require the Director of National Intelligence to declassify information relating to the origin of COVID-19, about which we will talk more in a moment. Last week in the Senate, the Senate returned on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jamar K. Walker to be a U.S. District Judge in the Eastern District of Virginia. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Jamal N. Whitehead to be U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Washington and Aracel Martinez-Olguin to be U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of California.
Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Margaret R. Guzman to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Massachusetts. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Colleen R. Lawless to be U.S. District Judge for the Central District of Illinois and Jonathan James Canada Gray to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Michigan. Then the Senate took up and passed H.J. Res. 30, the CRA resolution of disapproval overturning the Biden Labor Department rule we just talked about. Because Democrat Senators John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, Dianne Feinstein of California, and Jeff Merkley of Oregon, and Republican Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho didn't vote, there were only 96 votes cast, they broke 50 to 46 to overturn the rule, with two Democrats, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and John Tester of Montana, both of whom are in red states and are up for re-election next year when there will be a presidential election to drive turnout even higher in their red states, crossing over to join the 48 Republicans in the chamber. So the resolution passed, and now we'll go to Joe Biden, who will likely veto it. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of James Edward Simmons Jr. to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of California. Then by voice vote, which is another way of saying without objection, which is another way of saying unanimously, the Senate passed S-619, the COVID-19 Origin Act of 2023, which declares it is the sense of Congress that, quote, there is reason to believe the COVID-19 pandemic may have originated at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, end quote. And, quote, the Director of National Intelligence should declassify and make available to the public as much information as possible about the origin of COVID-19, end quote and then directs that, quote, not later than 90 days after the date of enactment of this act, the Director of National Intelligence shall declassify any and all information relating to potential links between the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the origin of the coronavirus disease 2019, that is, COVID-19, end quote. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Colleen R. Lawless to be U.S. District Judge for the Central District of Illinois. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Gordon P. Gallagher to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Colorado. Then the Senate voted to confirm the nomination of Jonathan James Canada Gray to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Michigan. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on confirmation on the nomination of James Edward Simmons, Jr. to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of California. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we will see votes on the following nominations during the course of the week. Gordon P. Gallagher to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Colorado. Robert Stewart Ballou to be U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Virginia. Andrew G. Shopler to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of California, Aaron Subramian to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York, Patrice H. Kunesh to be Commissioner of the Administration for Native Americans at the Department of Health and Human Services. In addition, we expect the Senate will vote Wednesday on the House-passed measure to overturn the District of Columbia City Council's recently enacted law revising the city's criminal code to reduce penalties for some violent crimes. Now, let's go back to that ESG CRA. H.J. Res. 30, the Congressional Review Act Resolution of Disapproval on ESG Investing with Government-Regulated Pension Funds, now goes to President Biden for his signature, or more likely, his veto. If Biden vetoes the resolution, 
the battle lines will be drawn very clearly. Democrats, led by President Biden, will have taken the position that the retirement funds of Americans should be available to be used as, quote, financial muscle for political causes they may not even support, end quote, in the words of Senate Minority Leader McConnell, who continued, quote, This administration wants to let fund managers prioritize extraneous factors from companies' carbon footprints to various HR policies when deciding where to invest hardworking Americans' savings, end quote. Now, let's talk about Biden signing that bill reversing the D.C. City Council. Speaking to Senate Democrats at their regular policy lunch last Thursday, President Biden infuriated House Democrats. Yes, that's right. He was speaking to Senate Democrats, but what he said angered House Democrats when he said he would not veto a resolution that overturns an act by the District of Columbia City Council that reduces the penalties for some violent crimes, including carjacking. The Constitution, you will recall, grants Congress authority over the federal district. Since 1973, Congress has allowed certain government powers to be carried out by local elected officials, including the mayor and the city council. In this case, the city council enacted a revision of the city's criminal code. But it was such a stretch that even the very liberal mayor, Muriel Bowser, the same woman who ordered Black Lives Matter painted in 50-foot-tall letters next to Lafayette Park, across the street from the White House when Donald Trump was president, even she said it was too much. She vetoed the measure, but the city council overrode her veto by a vote of 12 to 1. The House took up H.J. Res. 26, disapproving the action of the D.C. City Council in approving the revised Criminal Code Act on February 9. The Biden administration had issued a statement of administration policy before the vote, saying that Biden would veto the legislation if it came to his desk. Confident that they were backing their party leader's position, 173 House Democrats voted against the bill, while just 31 voted for it. Then, last week, speaking with Senate Democrats at their regular Thursday lunch, Biden declared he would not veto the bill if it got to his desk. Well, Two things happened immediately. First, the 173 House Democrats were enraged. Some of them even used very vulgar language in their discussions with reporters, the kind of language that is uh, denoted by asterisks. That language characterized the Biden White House as being run by amateurs. Second, Senate Democrats took advantage of the free pass Biden had just given them and began announcing their intent to vote for the bill to disapprove of the D.C. City Council's actions. Since then, we've heard that as many as 20 Democrat senators, maybe even more, will vote with Republicans to overturn the action of the D.C. City Council. They include Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, Martin Kelly of Arizona, and even Patty Murray of Washington. This would be the first time Congress has acted to overturn an action of the D.C. government since 1991. As I mentioned a moment ago, we anticipate this bill will be brought to the Senate floor for a vote on Wednesday. The longer it takes Majority Leader Schumer to bring it to the floor, the more time goes by with an open wound in the middle of the Democrat Party. Schumer and Biden want that wound to heal as quickly as possible. So it makes sense Schumer would bring the bill to the floor of the Senate as soon as he can, so they can get that vote out of the way and move on to another issue that brings them back together. Stay tuned. Now to the Biden tax hike rollout. President Biden will travel to Philadelphia Thursday to deliver a speech in front of a friendly crowd at a union hall. 
In that speech, he will reveal highlights of his budget proposal for fiscal year 2024. That budget proposal, by law, was due more than a month ago. According to White House sources speaking to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Biden's budget proposal would reduce the federal deficit by $2 trillion over 10 years and extend the life of Medicare by at least 20 years without cutting Medicare benefits. The talkative White House officials said the Inquirer report, quote, did not provide details of how Biden would accomplish that difficult combination, end quote. By definition, if Biden plans to extend Medicare by 20 years without cutting benefits, he necessarily plans to increase revenues, which is another way of saying he plans to raise taxes. And that's exactly what he said last Tuesday at an event in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Quote, I want to make it clear I'm going to raise some taxes, end quote. Of course, he included his standard disclaimer that, quote, no one making less than $400,000 is going to pay a penny more in taxes, end quote. Apparently, no one on his staff has told him that inflation should be considered a secret tax, and that secret tax affects everyone, no matter what their income level. That's not the only thing his White House staff apparently hasn't told him. In addition, it's apparent that no one on his White House staff has told him that Republicans now control the House of Representatives. It's clear he doesn't know this, because if he did, he wouldn't offer a proposal to raise taxes and then make Senate Democrats vote for that tax increase when he knows they have no way of passing that tax increase plan through a Republican majority House. More on that COVID follow-up. The Energy Department's decision to officially change its view of the origin of COVID continues to ripple through Washington. Remember, this is just one of eight intelligence agencies that have been tasked with figuring out COVID's origins. And even after its decision was reported last week by the Wall Street Journal, it still remains the case that only two of the eight agencies believe the most likely explanation is a lab leak. But on Tuesday evening, FBI Director Chris Wray appeared on Fox News' special report. Though there was nothing new in what he said, the FBI is the other intelligence agency that had previously believed COVID likely originated in a lab. He went into some detail explaining his agency's position on the matter. Quote, the FBI has for some time now assessed the origins of the pandemic or most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Let me step back for a second. The FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, etc., who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses like COVID, and the concerns that they're in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist or criminal, the threats that those could pose. So here you are talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans, and that's precisely what that capability was designed for. I should add that our work related to this continues, and there are not a whole lot of details I can share that aren't classified. I will just make the observation that the Chinese government, it seems to me, has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate the work that we're doing, end quote. The FBI reportedly concluded two years ago that a lab leak was the most likely explanation for the origins of COVID, but this was the first time the FBI director had made a public statement confirming it. In the wake of the Energy Department's reported switch, the Chinese government responded by rejecting the Energy Department's analysis and then accusing the Biden administration of politicizing the COVID emergency. Quote, 
COVID tracing is a scientific issue that should not be politicized, end quote, said a Chinese foreign ministry spokesman who went on to demand that the U.S., quote, stop defaming China, end quote, by normalizing the theory that COVID originated in a Wuhan lab leak. It was against this backdrop that Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley introduced his bill, S-619, the COVID-19 Origin Act of 2023. With just four co-sponsors, that bill moved from inception to unanimous passage on the same day. It's now in the House, which is scheduled to consider it Friday. I expect it will pass, and then it will go to President Biden for his signature. Stay tuned. Now, more on the student loan debt case. Last Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the two cases challenging President Biden's plan to conceal $400 billion in student loan debt. Keep in mind that what we hear during the oral arguments doesn't always track with the outcomes of cases. What I heard was a valiant attempt by the liberal justices, led by Justice Kagan, to reject the claim of standing by the plaintiffs in the two cases. What I also heard was a direct challenge to the merits of the Biden plan from Chief Justice Roberts. His line of questioning made it clear he seems to think the so-called major questions doctrine, which played such a large role last year in the case of West Virginia versus EPA, will similarly come into play in deciding these cases challenging President Biden's plan to cancel student loan debt. Now to Julie Sue. On Tuesday of last week, President Biden nominated current Deputy Secretary of Labor Julie Sue to serve as the new Secretary of Labor, replacing Marty Walsh, who's leaving to become head of the NHL Players Union. Julie Sue is a terrible choice for this position. Before she became Deputy Secretary of Labor, she served from 2017 to 2019 as the California Secretary of Labor and Workforce Development. During her tenure, she oversaw two terrible labor actions that hurt millions of Californians. First, as Secretary of Labor and Workforce Development, she had oversight of an agency called the Employment Development Department, which was responsible for distributing a large portion of California's COVID assistance funds. On her watch, California scam artists stole more than $32 billion. An investigation later found that the agency had failed to use fraud prevention systems because the systems, which would have cost several million dollars per year, were deemed too expensive. And as a result, tens of billions of dollars were lost to fraud. More infuriatingly, it was the most obvious kind of fraud. Single addresses received dozens of checks made out to dozens of different recipients. Forms were filed in the name of and checks were made out to Minnie Mouse and Poopy Britches. Sue's agency didn't cross-check the names against prison records either, so thousands of inmates, including convicted murderers, received unemployment benefits fraudulently. Then, when the agency recognized the fraud, it froze benefits for thousands of legitimate recipients. Remember, the Inspector General of the Department of Labor recently informed Congress that the federal agency has its own fraud problems. It lost at least $191 billion due to fraud during the COVID emergency. Biden has said he wants to clean up COVID fraud. There's no way he's going to make good on that promise if Sue is confirmed as Secretary of Labor. It's her department that oversees unemployment insurance, where most of the fraud occurred. Second, Sue also supports California's AB5. That's a law that uses standards to determine who's an employee or who's an independent contractor that are so complicated that it's made it nearly impossible for independent contractors to operate in California. 
According to multiple members of California's congressional delegation, this one law supported by Sue, quote, has cost tens of thousands of freelance workers and independent contractors their economic livelihoods, end quote. Big labor wants similar regulations put in place at the federal level. Putting similar regulations in place at the federal level would make it easier for union organizers to strong-arm them into joining their unions. Julie Sue's record makes it clear. She is the wrong person to serve as the Secretary of Labor. Now, finally, to House ethics challenges. On Thursday, the House Ethics Committee announced it had begun a formal investigation into the talented Representative George Santos. The committee statement revealed that the committee, which is evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats, had voted unanimously two days earlier to open an investigation into a series of allegations, including potential unlawful activity regarding the representative's 2022 campaign. Also on Thursday, the House Ethics Committee issued a statement revealing that the committee had extended its investigation into New York Democrat Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, after the board of the Office of Congressional Ethics voted to recommend extending the investigation. In a statement released Thursday, the OCE said, if Representative Ocasio-Cortez accepted impermissible gifts, then she may have violated House rules, standards of conduct, and federal law, unquote. At issue are multiple gifts the Congresswoman received related to her attendance at the 2021 Met Gala in Manhattan. The value of the gift she received, which included not just the notorious couture dress she wore, but also a handbag, shoes, and jewelry, as well as services for her hair, makeup, transportation, and hotel accommodations at the Carlisle Hotel. She even accepted a bow tie and shoes for her partner. According to the statement from the committee, Ocasio-Cortez didn't pay for these many items until after the Office of Congressional Ethics began its investigation. And that's our Washington Report for this week.